Hello, hello, lovely humans. I hope everyone is doing well on this fine day, whatever day it might be that you're listening here. So welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I am your host, Sarah Buino. And before we get into the meat of today's interview and topic, I have a couple of announcements to make. Okay, I'm super excited about this first one. So I've never done this before, but Aisha Ahmed from one of my previous podcasts has invited me to go live on Instagram with her. So we are going to go live on Wednesday, June 19th at 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'm really bad with time zones, so I'm not going to try to translate all the other time zones to potentially confuse you. I'm going to let you figure that out. I'm in Central Time, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. So we're going to be talking about the benefits of energy medicine and how I came to, I guess, be a believer and the ways that I've seen it work for clients and myself and yada, yada, yada. So you can check that out by going to either her profile, which is at Aisha Heels, A-I-S-H-A-H-E-A-L-S. Or if you follow me on Instagram at Head Heart Therapy, you can find it there. Wednesday, June 19th, 8.30 p.m. CST. Okay, next, I'm going to be in the Portland area, June 10th through 13th. So if you are a listener in the Portland area and you want to hang out, please connect with me on social media. And I am just really excited to meet new, amazing and wonderful people. And then finally, my last announcement, I have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash wounded healer. And that's W-O-U-N-D-E-D-H-E-A-L-R. I know that was not my preferred name, but that's kind of what I was stuck with. So basically with Patreon, it's a place where if you enjoy a podcast or a person's work, you can donate to them because I think I've shared before podcasts are not cheap to produce. Thank you, Andrea and Creative Imposter Studios. They're not cheap to produce, but to have good quality, it's really important to me to pay the big bucks to make it happen. So if you like this podcast and you want to know what can you do to support it, that is something that you can do. And once a month, I will be chatting with Patreon donors live. I did one once and had a lovely conversation with one of my fans, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hey, girl. And we're going to be doing that every month. So if you pledge five dollars or more per month you can continue the conversation so without further ado let's talk about this episode so today i'm talking with brad kammer and he is a somatic psychotherapist college professor community educator consultant and international trainer he's a practitioner and trainer in both somatic experiencing and neuroaffective relational model These body-mind approaches use mindfulness and body awareness to address trauma, stress, and relational challenges by eliciting our inner healing resources in support of a deeper sense of safety and self-empowerment. So you will hear Brad and I talk about SE, which is the somatic experiencing, and NARM, which is this neuroaffective relational model. You'll hear us talk about that throughout the episode. And I just wanted to let folks know if anybody is in the Chicago area, Brad will be doing a training. I believe that it's four weekends of five days. So four different modules. It starts at the end of July and is going to be going through, I believe, the spring of 2020. And if you're a therapist, a psychotherapist, and you're interested in learning more about mind-body connection, NARM is a super awesome thing to do. So if you haven't, you know, maxed out your training budget for the year, go ahead and check out NARM. If you just Google NARM, it will come up, I promise. So please enjoy my interview with Brad Kammer. 
Hello, Brad. Welcome to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you. I am so excited. I just finished my sensory motor psychotherapy training, and mm-hmm. I'm just super excited to talk about this. But before we like get into all the jazz, do you want to tell people who you are and what you do? Because you're probably better at it than me. <laughs> sure. So I live in Northern California, a couple hours north of San Francisco in a small town, and I'm a somatic trained psychotherapist. I've been in this field about 20 years now, and I'm also a college professor. I teach at uh, graduate and undergraduate, and my passion has really been in working with trauma, and I can tell you a little bit more later about my background where I came into this work, but I've been a somatic experiencing practitioner and teacher and NARM practitioner and teacher, and I've studied various other models, both somatic models and other models of working with trauma. And I am just passionate about not just helping clients on a one-on-one basis, which I really enjoy, and I've done that for a long time, but also how this work can have a larger impact with social issues and cultural issues and just the world and what we're Mm. passing down to the next generation. Ooh, I didn't even think about the macro perspective. We'll definitely have to get to that. Great. Yeah. So- I guess I'm curious, like, and this may come as you tell us a little bit more about your story and your own journey, but I'm curious if there was a point at which you were like, okay, talk therapy is not working anymore. I have to learn more about something else. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I I came into this work in kind of a unique way that before I was trained as a psychotherapist, I was already out in the world working with trauma. I was Mm. working as a humanitarian aid worker in Asia with Burmese refugees. Yeah. And so I was already attracted even before that to somatic things. I got introduced to yoga and meditation when I was young. And although I love talking, I also felt that it wasn't the whole package here. So when I worked with cultures outside of the United States, I really saw that we had left a big piece behind, which actually two big pieces. I mean, the one big piece of the body and the other big piece of just how relationship and community can support healing. And so that really became kind of my focus when I came back to the States to become trained as a therapist. I wanted to find Mm -hmm. models that were both how we could integrate the body and also in relationships. So yeah, that's kind of where I made my big shift and and got attracted to somatic approaches. Wow. And I'm curious what led you to the humanitarian work too. I mean, I guess that is in the context of your podcast. Oh, all of it. for Sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I come from transgenerational trauma in my own lineage and there's a strong service orientation in my culture, my family. And growing up, it's like nothing really made sense to me if I wasn't supporting other people and working Mm. with other people. And all throughout my 20s, I was really studying and interested in living in different cultures. And when I got introduced to the Burmese culture, I just felt very moved to do what Mm -hmm. I could to kind of support what was happening at that point. Things have changed a little bit since then, but, you know, supporting their culture and, and the fragmentation and all the trauma that was going on. So it was kind of a parallel process where I was providing support and building relationships, but I also was receiving so much through the process and Mm -hmm. it stirred all sorts of stuff up. I mean, I now look back and think about the secondary trauma that I was experiencing and how that brought up a lot of my own stuff, which then sent me back to become a therapist and, and do my own work. All right. So humanitarian, Burmese culture, trauma, back to the U.S., becoming a therapist, and then what? How did you find somatic experiencing or what happened next? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a funny story. I was in Vermont at the time on the East Coast, and I was in a health food co-op in Montpelier, Vermont. And I always am curious and look at all the bulletin board postings and stuff. And hmm. I saw a flyer that jumped out at me that had a tiger on it, and it said <laughs> heel trunk. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's funny. I lived in Colorado, but I had never heard about Peter Levine's work yet. And so I showed up for an introductory workshop on somatic experiencing. And from the second I sat down, I was enthralled and I signed up right away and very fortunate to have support because at that time I was in graduate school and I didn't have a lot of financial support. So I I was grateful to get the financial support to be able to take the training. Mm -hmm. And I just was kind of bought in from the first second and loved the work and loved it for myself, loved it for the clients. And I feel so grateful that I got this at the beginning of my career. Yeah. And now as a teacher, I get so excited to have graduate students and clinical interns and because I didn't have to unlearn everything like a lot of people do. Yes, yes. And I noticed that I was, you know, 20 years younger, 30 years younger at that time than a lot of my co-students in my class. And mm. it was much more challenging for them than it was for me. And I don't think I was unique. I didn't have to unlearn all of the 20 or 30 years of learning and experience that they had. So that was really cool for me. And now, as, again, as a teacher, I really love sharing that with new students, too. Yeah, we had two current graduate students in our SP cohort, and we just kept saying that, like, you guys are so lucky you get to learn this early, and we were so envious of them. It was awesome. Totally. Well, that's great. It's great that, you know, they feel the support for the more experienced therapists, too, because sometimes little camps can happen, and so it's nice yeah. when there's that support all along. Yeah. Well, would you mind, if you can, in a nutshell, sharing with listeners, if anybody's unfamiliar with what somatic experiencing is, would you mind sharing a little nugget? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate. Again, I have two passions in my life that are both in the same field of trauma. So one is somatic experiencing, and one is what I re referred to before as NARM, called mm -hmm. the Neuroaffective Relational mm -hmm. Model. And so SE somatic experiencing really came out of Peter Levine's work in the 60s, 70s, you know, in 80s, 90s, really trying to understand how humans can have the equipment and the systems in place to resolve trauma. And he did a lot of study with wild animals and humans and really understanding that we can't resolve trauma. Trauma is not a life sentence. And being kind of this emphasis on working with the body that we can shift these patterns that get stuck in us and that lead to all sorts of different PTSD symptoms. So it's a very gentle model that works with the body directly and supporting the body to come back into balance after traumatic events or traumatic experiences. So the field is evolving very quickly now mm -hmm. and changing a lot. And I've been interested for 20 years since I got into this field about transgenerational trauma and relational trauma and developmental trauma. And so we now are starting to get a new understanding of what's called complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And NARM is a model that's specifically designed for working with complex post-traumatic stress disorders. These aren't necessarily events that happened to us mm -hmm. that were life-threatening, like combat or assaults or car accidents, things like this. But these are more long-term misattunements that are happening to mm -hmm. us in our family or growing up with families where there's alcohol abuse or mental illness mm -hmm. or violence or chronic trauma, not just a one assault, you know, sexual assault, let's say, mm -hmm. but chronic molestation or things like this, where our whole body and brain has to adapt to survive these experiences throughout childhood and the sacrifices that we have to make inside of ourselves to survive. 
and how that as we get older, that starts to catch up with us. And in psychology, there are all these different labels to try to like name what's going on, but we're going beneath the behaviors, beneath the symptoms to really understanding what we call the psychobiological patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's complex. That's why it's field is complex trauma. So the way I look at it is somatic experiencing is the most powerful model that I've been introduced to that works with event traumas and traumas that really dysregulate the nervous system. And uh, NARM is a complementary model that works more with the complex relational and developmental issues that not only affect the nervous system, but also affect our emotional processing, our cognitive system, the way that we develop our personalities and show up in the world in relationships as well. Right. And I mean, doesn't everyone have some sort of attachment injury somewhere? (laughs) That is my strong belief. You know, I wrote my thesis. It was called Trauma and Civilization. And my whole Mm. argument was civilization is based on unresolved developmental trauma. Yeah. So I'm a strong believer in that. Yes. Yeah. So this is where I think we dive into the kind of wounded healer talk, because I just started seeing somebody to do some NARM work. And it's funny, I never I never would have thought of myself as someone who experienced trauma, right? No overt abuse, no neglect, right? No one ever touched me in an inappropriate way, but tons of attachment trauma. And I really struggled with the SP training personally only because I felt like every time I left, I just was wiped and completely like activated. And I just really, really struggled. And I have been trying to figure out like, is that I mean, there's some like other like relational stuff with some of the people who are in the training, too. So I know that that's part of it. But I took this to my therapist on Monday. And I was like, am I not cut out for this trauma work? And so she was she was very gently, like, of course, guiding me back to the body, like, you know, what do you feel when you say that and all of that jazz. But at least in my body, There's no way I could do a trauma training like this without attending to what happens for me personally. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the cool thing about these trainings, at least in the somatic world, the trainings, we realize that to do professional development and get these techniques and these skills, we need to experience it inside ourselves. And Wilhelm Reich said 100 plus years ago that you can't take someone where you've never been. And I think that that's part of the wounded healer process is that it's both a gift and a curse, actually. Yeah. We, and we talk about this in the NARM training because the gift is that it creates such sensitivity. I mean, therapists are the most attuned, mm-hmm. compassionate people that you'll ever meet. I mean, who else would dedicate their life to sitting with really intense pain? Mm-hmm. So we're incredible in the way that we've developed our sensitivity and our capacity for attunement. The flip side of it is that it creates certain challenges for us as clinicians because we can get kind of hooked in a lot of different ways. And when we get hooked, and sometimes that makes it that we can't be as effective as mm-hmm. therapists. It's one of my soapbox issues when I do these trainings and classes. It's like 100 years ago when people trained to be a therapist, you had one choice. You could train to be a psychoanalyst. <laughs> and there was a lot of problems with that. But one of the things that happened is that it was like an apprenticeship position where you had to go through mm-hmm. psychoanalysis four days a week for many years before they felt you were ready to be a therapist. And we've left that out in this modern, everything's so cognitive and behavioral. We've left Mm -hmm. out the understanding of the transparent and that when you're working with another person, you're developing it. Sometimes the most intimate relationship that that client has ever had. Yes. This is an attachment work. This is attachment work. And so just like we needed our parents to be 
mindful of what was going on inside themselves and how they impacted us as children, mm-hmm. we as therapists, that should be the central focus before we even think about the interventions, what's happening for us and how what's happening for us might be impacting our clients in the process. There's so much I want to say in response to that, but I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, when is, the answer is probably never, but when is managed care going to catch up to like reimbursing for what actual problems people are having instead of causing us to like pigeonhole people into these diagnoses when really everybody has some underlying trauma, whether it be attachment or shock trauma, and there's only one trauma diagnosis in the DSM, which is really limiting. And I mean, I guess doing somatic experiencing, you know, as long as you're diagnosing someone with, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or whatever, it's reimbursable. But just the system that we have is not conducive to actually helping people in the way that works. (laughs) No, you're right. This is a huge problem because you can do amazing one-on-one therapy and yet we're sending them out for the rest of their week into the world with People are living in systems and structures that are not designed to support. They're definitely not designed to support children, for sure. Right. And I don't think they're designed well to support adults either. So, in fact, I argue that they are designed to perpetuate more trauma. Yes. So it's really difficult. And you're right. I mean, I'm focusing so much in my career now on just teaching clinicians these models of working with trauma. But I'm hoping that people that come to these classes we'll be able to take these into systems and public policy and all sorts of different directions that aren't just clinical because we need to be working all of the above. Yeah. I was just having lunch with somebody yesterday who she calls herself disabled and she said everybody should be doing some sort of advocacy for the disabled because you're we are the most inclusive club and everybody's going to join that one day and it just makes me think of of this too like every single person could benefit from some type of somatic work because every time I say trauma to someone they're like well I don't have that I I just did a (laughs) group in a detox center on Monday. And there were three people, we were doing this little exercise for empathy. And so one person steps in the middle of the circle and they say, who like me? And then they say something and then everybody else steps in who also identifies with that. And somebody said, who like me doesn't know why they're an addict. And so three Mm. people step in the circle. And after we completed the circle, I said, I know why. (laughs) And I said, (laughs) I said trauma. And they looked at me funny. And then we talked about developmental trauma and what that is, because so many people, I find it fascinating because I I spent my whole life blaming my family for everything. But so many people protect their family at all costs and will say, my family life was great. My parents were amazing. Like we didn't have any issues in childhood, but that doesn't matter because if you weren't attended to in the way that you needed, it doesn't matter. Exactly. And there's a larger picture. That, let's just say, which I call it the unicorn scenario, but let's just say you have a perfectly secure attachment with your parents. Let's just say that that's the case. You still are being raised in an environment that is not supportive of your needs as children. And so when we talk about attachment and norm, we extend it. We're not just talking about the parents, although yeah. that's the primary attachment figure. We're talking about the parents and their lack of support from their community, from their family, intergenerationally. I mean, this is this is a big thing. And so, again, even if the parents have done a wonderful job or at least attempting to do a wonderful job, it doesn't mean that we're not all impacted by the world we're growing up in. And it just makes me think 
civilization obviously has had many gifts for us as humans. And if we think about early humanity, how dangerous it was, and, and almost everything was a question of survival. So that wasn't good for our nervous systems. <laughs> And then we move forward and we have civilization now to the point that it is and, and capitalism and we're all focused on success and money and all of those things. That's not good for our nervous system. I can't even imagine a society where we would live in that was safe for our nervous systems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we just do the best we can, yeah. you know, of course. But it is important to recognize. I mean, you're saying something that I feel is very important is another thing that I feel like is being missed in parenting and even in therapy and stuff is just like what they sometimes call distress tolerance, which is basically like mm -hmm. as adults, we are going to have to learn how to handle loss and right. feeling unsafe in certain situations. And how do we do that without either acting in towards ourselves or acting out towards our environment? Like, I think that's right. real resiliency because then we have options so that if we need to do something with our environment or if we need to do something with ourselves, it's not coming out of this acting in, acting out kind of reactive place. It comes from a more kind of connected, mindful place where we can actually really take care of whatever our needs are in that moment. Exactly. That's exactly what I say to people in early recovery, that you've been acting in against yourself because of lack of distress tolerance, lack of tolerance of any negative feeling state. Exactly. You brought that up a few times. It's so true. I, I think the recovery world is the next kind of like, you know, it's like Mars. It's like the next place we're going to inhabit in terms of this trauma-informed understanding. It's already starting to happen. Yeah. And I was just had a big meeting when I was in Florida last week with a really big treatment center. And they were talking about how just like everyone's just throwing up on their website now. We're trauma-informed. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's great. That's the right movement. But then you know, from my perspective, it's like, well, what are they actually informed about? Because exactly. you really want to understand where the trauma is being driven from in the nervous system, in the brain. Yes. And they're using a lot of older models out there that mm -hmm. are effective or sometimes even harmful to people. So these somatic approaches, I think, have really evolved the field in such an amazing way. And I'm excited to see them continue to get more mainstream. Yeah, you brought up such a good point. There's a let's just say one of the largest treatment centers in the Chicago area that literally says on their website, all of our practitioners are trauma trained. And I can tell you for a fact, that is a lie. And okay. I'm so angry about it. And it's also one of the more old school models of treatment. 12 step facilitation doesn't fucking cut it for trauma. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. And so I will go on this crusade with you and change addiction because this is why people are relapsing and they don't understand. One of the things I'm really interested in studying more is denial. And somebody brought to my attention that denial could be a form of dissociation based on trauma. Like that blew my fucking mind. And we have to help people create more space to get in touch with their real selves instead of these false selves. And like you said, going from this reactionary place rather than a mindful place. I love the story. I'm sure you've heard about it, but like about the creation of the ACEs study and Irish childhood experiences study. Mm -hmm. And this is like a big thing that's helping this complex trauma understanding, you know, get more mainstream. But it's so interesting because the study was originally a study on weight loss. They had this weight loss program. Huh. Yeah, it's really fascinating in Southern California. And people created this whole weight loss program. 
and people were doing amazing. They were really moving towards their goals. And we're talking like serious pounds, like 150, 200 pounds of weight loss. Hmm. So people were really achieving in a big way. And then the researcher who was overseeing it, Vincent Felitti, he started to notice that people were dropping out right before they were succeeding. Like literally like 10 pounds away, they had lost 150 pounds. And then 10 pounds away from their goal, they would just drop out of the program. And he was noticing that this was a really common trend. And so he went and interviewed as many people. I can't remember. It was a really large number of people that they went and interviewed. And they found that a significant portion of these people had early childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And he started to put together the pieces that there's something threatening about success. Yeah. And I think about it with treatment all the time. Yes. It's like you start to get healthy and clean, that becomes a threat. Yep. And so, and what's the best way to deal with that is you just go back to using what the strategies you were using before. And even though that doesn't make any sense cognitively, right. in a brain and nervous system and survival lens, it makes complete sense. Yep, absolutely. And I think that this would be so helpful for us again, to continue to bring into these other, like you said, these more kind of old school models. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm with you. I will be right behind you <laughs> with my picket <laughs> signs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Use somatic yeah. therapy. Use somatic therapy. Yeah. And then the worst part about it, it just drives me crazy is that then what do we do in our field? Okay. So people keep on, let's say relapsing. If we're talking about treatment mm -hmm. or let's say we're talking about clinical work, people mm -hmm. are, are, are not making the progress that the therapist think they should or want them to be, then we start blaming the person. We start blaming the client. There's this like, again, so not trauma informed. It's like we're blaming them instead of understanding the actual survival wisdom of those strategies and trusting in the client that when they don't need to use those strategies anymore, they won't use them anymore. Right. But until they feel in their bones, in their blood, that they don't need that anymore, they're going to use it. They're going to use those strategies. Right. And that's the kindness and the generosity or whatever you want to call it, the compassion that is really, from my perspective, needs to come with any trauma-informed model. Mm-hmm. And then bringing the system into this, because sometimes a person is going to need some more intensive treatment in order to make those gains. But long-term treatment or more intensive treatment is not accessible or affordable to a lot of the population. Exactly. And the places that are, are not always really, right. you know, someone was telling me this weekend when we were in Florida that they were really struggling because in the town, they, there's only one facility that they can send people to, a mental health facility. And it's brutal. It's a brutalizing place. And so they're like, right. I'm not going to send that person. That person needs wraparound care. Right. They don't have money. They can't spend 30000 a month to go to some place. And I ain't going to send them to a place where they're going to be brutalized by the staff that doesn't understand what's going on and just right. looks at them as creating problems for them. And mm -hmm. it's sad. I mean, we've come a long way, so we don't want to lose sight of it, but we have a long way to go. I can't even honestly imagine what's going to have to happen to the system. It's just going to have to break or like be burnt to the ground. I just, I really can't imagine how it's going to get better unless it gets worse first. Yeah. It's hard to kind of envision what that looks like, <laughs> but yeah, it's a little scary. Yeah. Let's shift gears to a little bit more of, of your own story. What do you think about the term healer in terms of your work? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm uncomfortable with it. 
I don't know why exactly in this moment, but I mean, I understand why we use it, but I also feel a little uncomfortable. I, I guess, you know, there's a way that I look at my work as a relationship, as a collaborative relationship, and mm-hmm. I'm not an expert over anyone else's internal world. They are, and I can support them and give a certain kind of guidance and support and facilitation, but ultimately, I believe that people are their own healers. So I guess that's kind of how I look at it. I look at it very mm-hmm. relationally oriented. And I do get uncomfortable when sometimes people like you know, people will throw these statements when they're watching me work in classes and stuff. And they make these comments about my work, you know, in a very positive way. Right. But it makes me a little uncomfortable because it's like I feel like all I'm doing like a parent would with the child, like a secure attachment relationship with the child. I'm just mm-hmm. trying to tune into the other person to see how I can best support that person. And whatever we call that, I don't know exactly, but that's kind of how I perceive that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think sometimes when I ask this question, the fear of taking on the term healer, there's some sort of being put on a pedestal with it. And that's kind of what I heard in the story that you just shared. But it's also indicative of how children view their parents, too. They're on a pedestal until (laughs) the child realizes that they're human and then they fall off that pedestal. So it's interesting. I feel like... There's something in my own personal work that I have to figure out this whole pedestal thing because it's either like you're on a pedestal and like you're amazing and great or then I knock you off and then you suck and I'm mad at you, but I still believe in you. Like I can't even come up with it right now, but clearly something from my own childhood and the attachment stuff that created that. It's just interesting. Oh, yeah. Me too. I can feel that too. And I I think that's part of my relationship to it. It's like Mm -hmm. I as a person... Whether this is healthy or not, I don't know, but it just is what it is at this point. I have a very difficult time with gurus, yeah. and I'm really turned off by that kind of energy. And I believe it's very subtle. Yes. I believe that in front of a group of 30 people that are all seeing you in different ways, a lot of projections that come towards teachers, mm-hmm. I think it's very subtle that you can start to kind of take that energy and use it in a certain way for yourself and against other people that can become very toxic. Whether this is healthy or not, I generally kind of am self-deprecating and I generally don't like to get that kind of attention. And at the same time, I really love the work I do. So it's it's part of my own work of finding more comfort in a role where I am. Like you said, it's true. I am an authority figure. And how do I feel comfortable in that and stay balanced in it? That's going to be probably a long time of work for me. Yeah. Well, and also to the realization that you're a man in a female dominated industry, certain things that get projected on you that might be different than people who are of the same sex and potentially heterosexual. And my husband just went back to school or he's finishing actually now he's getting his MSW. And I talk about with all my friends how I either find men in this field extraordinarily safe or absolutely unsafe. (laughs) And I don't think that's just my stuff. I think this conversation that we're talking about of like feeding on that teacher energy, that leader energy, feeding on that and what that does then to the ego that then people can use it against you or you're someone who's always kind of trying to be like, eh, I'm just like you. I put my pants on one leg at a time and how crucial that is, especially for men in this field, especially someone doing trauma work. Yeah. I had a client just in the last week that she comes from a totally different world. She comes from the world of Zen Buddhism and just hearing the stories that she's been through. And this is my bias, but 
everything she described to me was abuse, like mm. everything. And I know it's we have to be culturally sensitive, even though the teachers are all American, but it's a different cultural perspective on how mm. they view authority and teaching and the lineage, how it gets passed down and all that stuff. But through the lens of human development, yes. it just seems abusive. And I see that also in, in our world, in the training world, and in psychotherapy, and in mm-hmm. graduate school. And it's definitely a big part of the medical industry, the medical world. Oh, yeah. And the recovery world, too. And so mm-hmm. I just do not like those things. I generally try to combat those things. And I look for ways that we can kind of collaborate. And we all are in this together. So that's kind of how I view these things. And yeah. I'm curious your experience in academia because I'm also a professor and I'm just an adjunct and I love it because I can just go in and talk to my students and then go out and I don't have to deal with any of the drama of academia. But I volunteered on a committee once and I was just like watching the dynamics of ego and I'm like, is this what you people do all day long? This is not social work. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. No, that's so true. I'm an adjunct too. So yeah. yeah, when I was in my graduate school program, I was really loved my thesis that I was putting together. And so I had a friend who was a professor, he was you know, 10 years older than me or something, and I was picking his brain and I said, like, you know, I'm thinking about maybe getting my PhD instead of just my master's because I'm so loving this researching and thinking about teaching. He asked me what I kind of envisioned myself doing mm-hmm. in 10 years or whatever. And he's like, do not go into academia. He said, it is just, I mean, this was his experience and mm-hmm. he's still a professor. But he's just, you know, like what you described, he said it was just full of backbiting and politics. And I'm not like that. Like I said, I like to work with people. I like to clap. I don't like to compete. That's not my nature. I like to compete with myself. I like to challenge myself, but I'm Mm -hmm. not interested in getting better on someone else's back. And so I've never been drawn to that. And so I'm I'm glad I didn't because like you, I don't have to go to all those meetings. And Right. (laughs) Yeah. And if you want to do a research study, you just do it and you don't have anyone telling you when to do it. And my job's not based on it, right? Like, right. you know, all the fear of having to publish. And then I know that that creates people to cut corners and to do things that aren't ethical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that whole game just doesn't attract me yes. any longer. So to any baby therapists who might be listening to this podcast, if you want to teach, you don't have to get your PhD. Two people here who just have masters, just have masters, and we're teaching and it's fine. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I think people like us can be much more effective as teachers because we're not yeah. caring about that much with our classes. And mm-hmm. people know that I, I'm not loyal to any, I'm loyal to the students. That's all I'm, right. I'm not loyal to any program direction or right. like if they fire me, they fire me. It's like, I'm doing what I believe in and, and giving that to the students. And mm-hmm. I've been lucky to have a lot of support over the years, but I know that that's not always how it is. So. Yeah. So speaking of kind of being a teacher and a mentor and put on a pedestal, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? That actually feels a little bit more comfortable to me. <laughs> yeah. I get on your website and your bio and stuff, and I really see it the same way. I like Jung's idea of that. And I think it's very true. I mean, I think we come into this profession, those of us that are really passionate about this field, because we can relate to it really directly. And Mm -hmm. I think that gives us a certain kind of leg up in terms of how we work with our clients. And like I said before, like a sensitivity to it. And this is just me personally, although I do kind of have a judgment about this. I will never, ever stop learning and growing. Yes. I've always, since as a kid, I've been curious. I'm still curious. 
I don't have strong opinions about things, but I'm open to learning new things and, and just diving into the confusion of the learning process and the growth process. And I mean, I've been in my own therapy for over 20 years mm-hmm. now consistently because I'm interested in different kinds. So that's my value system for myself. And I do have a judgment of people in our field that aren't continuing to do their work. Yes. Preach. Again, it's another thing with the way that we've gone with graduate school and the way we're training therapists that a lot of therapists are not getting their own therapy. They acquired their supervision hours for their license. They never get supervision again. Mm-hmm. Or I just find that really, I, I find it unethical myself. Same. So that's why I'm in this world of going around, you know, leaving my family to do these trainings because first of all, I'm passionate about the work. But second of all, I want to give back to what I've been able to receive over these last years. And I do think we're all coming into this with our wounds and that that helps us to become really effective. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. And I mean, that was one of the catalysts for the podcast in the first place is I do so many trainings too. And I always assume everybody knows what I know because I just, (laughs) I just assume you're doing your work, but it started shocking me how much people didn't know. And I want people to be able to not be afraid. I think it comes down to fear and fear based on probably attachment stuff, right? It's fear of really looking at yourself and really having to touch into those parts that are so uncomfortable. But I literally like don't know how to do the world any other way. Yeah, that comes across just in the stuff I was hearing about you and learning about you. And I I really appreciate it. I was looking forward to this conversation and getting to know you more, hopefully this summer. Yes, (laughs) dude, I will be in the front row and asking all the questions and you're going to be so sick of me. I doubt that. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm always, I love to be around people like you and this kind of energy that we're just getting to kind of go through all this stuff together. And we don't know it all, but we can learn a lot. Yeah. I mean, human behavior is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. You know, I actually did have a question for you, if I can ask you. Please. I mean, I have a lot, but there's one that came up because I didn't realize actually until we got on this call that you had studied sensory motor psychotherapy. Yeah. I'm kind of like a I don't know what you want to call it, a nerd or a connoisseur or whatever for all the different somatic approaches. And yeah. so I like to interview people about their own experiences. So as much as you're comfortable, I'd love to hear. I know you're coming into NARM and learning more about NARM. Mm-hmm. And people was lacking in sensory motor that you anticipate that NARM might be able to provide. So... One piece of it is more of an interpersonal thing with some people who were in the training. And so I don't want to go into that stuff. So that aside, I can tell you all about some time over coffee. Um, (laughs) Also, the training was less linear than I like to learn. And so the training style just didn't really fit exactly with what I wanted. Also, truthfully, Bianca, the shift that I saw in Bianca was so attractive And she even asked me, what is it? And there's just the way I described it to her is it's like her light was kind of dull and dim. And then after the training, her light was bright. So that was part of it. And she also told me that there is a not often talked about spiritual component to NARM, which I'm really interested in. That's kind of more along the lines of where my personal work and my clinical work is moving. And so that was something that kind of lit me up. Well, that's great. That spiritual component is a strong undercurrent in the NARM work because in the field, it's kind of sterilized, talked about post-traumatic growth, which, which is important that we identify that that happens. But we really deconstruct what that means mm. from an ARM perspective. 
which the basic overview of it is that when we're no longer living in accordance to these old survival strategies, who we take ourselves to be, how we view the world in these very set ways, as we start to quiet those and get some distance from those and actually start dissolving some of those patterns, then who are we? Yeah. And what is our relationship to this universe and this world? And that yeah. becomes so much larger and so much more capacity for freedom and intimacy and creativity and it's really an exciting part of this work that I can't wait to share with you and other people. Well, and I feel like that's part of what is kind of the illness of our world right now and why we're <laughs> we're living in a place that's so unsafe for our nervous systems is because we're not in touch with who we are in terms of, of the universe and connection to others and all of that. Exactly. It's interesting. You said something before about like humans a long time ago that there was a lack of safety because we didn't know if we were going to survive day to day. And like I don't know because none of us were there. So we don't know. Oh, you weren't? Oh, but, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in another, in another body. Yeah, right. I imagine, and of course I could be wrong, but I imagine that actually they had a lot more safety than we do mm. because the tribal way of living yeah. and everywhere a child goes, they know that that adult has their back and is looking out for them with safety. And many adults. Yeah, many, multiple, exactly. Right. Not just family lineage adults, but the whole community. And growing up in that environment allows us, what we, we talked about before, the capacity to develop distress tolerance, which means that we have greater resiliency for dealing with life and death situations more akin to how animals are able to resolve after trauma. Because, I mean, you think about an animal every day, they're under threat by their predators. But yeah. I think actually they live probably a lot of them when they were, you know, at least more on their own land now that their right. land's been taken away. Wild animals probably lived pretty healthy, balanced lives. And I don't think they were under threat all the time. I think they were only under threat in very small periods of time. And the rest of the time they lived, animals like humans lived in their yeah. pack, their tribe that allowed them to feel embedded in a sense of safety, belonging, connection. And so it's another thing I love about these trainings and classes, if they're developed in the right way, is that they can be opportunities for us to be with our tribe and yeah. to connect to people that are kind of wanting to create safety in relationships. And it's hard to do that in this world. And this gives us an opportunity to kind of do that in some way. Yeah, you're so right. I can't remember what culture it was and what I was listening to. That This is part of the problem of learning everything. I have no idea where anything came from, but I'm sure it was a podcast of some sort, but they were talking about a culture where a child's feet literally never touched the ground until they were three years old because someone in the community was always holding them. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Talk about safety. Oh my God. Yeah. Talk about holding environments. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, we are coming up towards the end of the hour, which I can't believe how quickly this has gone. But is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure to share with listeners today? Well, I just appreciate that you're doing this. It's such a service. I mean, I can't wait. I'm getting them on my phone. So for my next road trip, I can listen to Yay! other people. Yeah, it's just really cool. And Again, I just feel like we can learn so much from each other. So I'm just mm -hmm. happy to be one in our choir here and look forward to being together with you and the community in Chicago. And I just think there's a lot of really difficult things happening in our world. And 
we need to hang together and find ways to deal with these effectively. So I, yeah, again, I just appreciate you inviting me in to join your community here. And I look forward to you kind of joining into ours in the training this summer. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This was really great. I was already looking forward to the training, but even more so now. Oh, cool. I will take you up probably on that coffee. So we'll do that at some point. Done. Well, thanks again, Brad. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much, Brad, for being on the show. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. And I hope to have some new friends in NARM starting in July. And thanks as always to the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. To find out more information about Brad, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Don't forget to share, rate, review, listen, and just like be cool. Don't forget to be cool. All right. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.